This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Jim Farrell, President and CEO of Farmers National Company. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. The American Sugar Alliance is a national coalition of sugar farmers, processors, refiners, and suppliers dedicated to preserving a strong sugar industry. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Jim Farrell next. Sugar subsidies in 120 countries are on the rise and threatening 142,000 U.S. jobs. That's why the American Sugar Alliance is pushing for a global subsidy ceasefire. Their goal is a subsidy-free world market that fosters efficiency. And they know that unilateral disarmament of America's no-cost policy without concessions from abroad will only outsource U.S. jobs and reward foreign subsidizers. The plan is called the 040 Sugar Policy. You can learn more at SugarAlliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The last great bear market in U.S. agriculture in the 1980s could well be described as a perfect storm. Commodity prices were high, but so were interest rates. Net farm income was falling. Farmers couldn't service their debt and couldn't secure operating loans. Jim Farrell with Farmers National Company says the industry lost hundreds of thousands of farmers and couldn't find anyone willing to invest in the business. There became a point where auctions just were not taking place because of that. Uh, auctions were setting new lows in the market and people didn't really want to do that. So then pretty well the market just kind of froze up. I started working for Farmers National in Minnesota in 1986 and listed a farm for sale in 1987 and it was listed at a price, well, it was somewhere around $600 an acre on ground that would have sold at the peak for around 3000 2900 3000 And I couldn't get a buyer. I mean, I couldn't get a bid. Nobody was interested in it at that price. And that was ground that would grow, you know, 150 bushel corn pretty easily. Uh, and that thing would cash flow. You probably could pay for it in five years, but people were scared. And cash was, you know, you couldn't get cash. Bankers weren't willing to loan uh, at that point. Most bankers were freezing their lending and, and working on acquired assets. So in 1986, our company was purchased by MetLife Ag Investments, which led to my hiring because that allowed us to open an office in Minnesota. They bought us to manage their acquired properties. And during that time frame, we managed somewhere over 850 farms and ranches for them that they'd acquired and then we sold them for them as well uh, into the early 90s. Many of those farms went back to the people that lost them. Some have tried to draw parallels between the Great Bear Market in the 70s and 80s to what we've seen over the past few years with a tremendous run-up in commodity prices, a big run-up in land values and in cash rents, and now with the precipitous fall that we've seen in commodity prices. Is there a parallel? Well, you know, there are some similarities, and i talked about these at different conferences where I've been a presenter. Probably the biggest similarity to me is that what created the 1980 farm crash was lack of operating capital. It was just, it was just that simple. Uh, you know, when your operating capital dried up and your asset values were falling, no one was going to loan you more operating capital. If you can't get operating capital and you can't put your crops in or you can't take care of your livestock, pretty soon you can't pay your land loans and the whole thing collapses. We are seeing that today, not anywhere near to the degree that we did then. But there are farm operators 
the last two years, we've seen them in our shop that have gone out of business because they couldn't get operating capital. They were too far leveraged. They didn't have enough asset base behind them to allow a bank to continue to loan to them when their assets started to drop, and they couldn't get that operating capital. And so to a degree, that's similar to what we're seeing today. You know, that's probably, to me, the greatest similarity right there. The other thing I think that we've seen is uh, exuberance in the run-up of land prices. So we clearly, I think today, you'd, you'd have a hard time finding too many that would argue that we didn't push land prices a bit too high with our exuberance, especially in 2011 and 12. Some of that was driven by 0% interest rate at the Fed, and of course some of that was driven by extremely high prices for the grain, which 0% interest at the Fed helped feed those high prices. So there were really, you know, three factors that pushed this thing up. And some of us in the industry feel we probably put maybe 10 to 15% too much on land prices. Some would even argue maybe 20%. Uh, and so we're seeing that retracement now. And we saw very similar things happen in the late 70s. Uh, the difference, though, in the late 70s, as I mentioned earlier, income was declining while land values were going up. Here, in this last run-up, land values, when, when income started to flatten out and started to go down, we didn't really see land values continue to go up. Land values maybe froze or started to go down slowly, uh, as opposed to what we saw in the 70s. So I think that's a big difference. Let's talk about the pendulum swing. Look at the last 10 years of where we were prior to the run-up in commodities to the top and then where we are with values now. We've dropped some over the past several months. The question is, has we, have we dropped enough to, to, to find an equilibrium in this market? Well, you know, the bull market that began in about 2006, fall of 2006, started in Iowa primarily. And I think a lot of it was built around the ethanol uh, boom at that point. Of course, you know, China's increase in soybean imports also played a big part of it. Uh, but Iowa was kind of the epicenter of the run-up in, in prices, at least from what we could see here. Iowa has led the prices down a little bit, too. And we think top quality land in Iowa is down at least 15%, maybe down as much as 20%. Is that enough? Well, uh, there are those who would argue we probably have another 5 to 10% down at least. Uh, and, and I could see that. I, I don't know that that would be unhealthy for the market. <clears throat> I think what has been healthy for the market is that these downtrends have been really slow to happen. We're kind of on a slow roll downhill. And, you know, to me, that's the best thing that can happen in agriculture to help us equal out where we should be uh, based on what our operating capital generate well, how much operating capital we can generate off of the off of the farms uh, to pay for them that's kind of where we're headed right now we're trying to get to that equilibrium and we're doing it rather slowly as opposed to going off of a cliff like say we did in the 1980s and where suddenly land values the bottom just fell out of and we haven't seen that this time around. One of the best investments we had seen in recent years, not necessarily been in the financials, but in farmland values. If farmers are reluctant or cash-strapped to be able to purchase land now, is this opening the door for other investments and, and, and outside groups that are not necessarily in agriculture but want to own farmland? That's an interesting question. I know in our shop we'll sell on an average year anywhere from 450 to 
650 properties, and on a peak year back like 2012, 750 or so properties. 80 to, and in some places, as much as 90% of those farms are being sold to farmers, and they still are today. Uh, we have an active investor group trying to buy, and not a specific group by that. I just mean there is a lot of investor activity in the market today, and they are players in the market. There's no question about it. And they're probably buying a bit more now today than they were. But the investors are only buying in certain areas. And that's because of state law and, and state laws that prohibit them from owning property in that state. So Nebraska is a state where you'll find investors purchasing ground. Uh, and then you've got to go east of the Mississippi over to Illinois, Indiana, Ohio. And then you have to drop down to the Mid-South. Uh, and that's primarily the area where we're seeing the investors. And then uh, there's been a surge of investment money moving into the northwest, uh, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, that area. Uh, and that's where the investors are buying. So if you look at it market-specific, there's a higher percentage of land, say, in Illinois being sold to investors than there is in Iowa by, by quite a bit. And, and that has to do to a degree with the fact that they can buy in Illinois and they can't in Iowa, obviously. There are investors buying in Iowa, but they tend to be individual investors, not the funds like, uh, say, a farmland partner you know, fund or that kind of thing. Uh, they're, they're not the ones that are buying in those states. Jim, what does it mean for the industry if investor or absentee ownership increases? Well, when you look around the country today, in Illinois, for instance, I think they tell me that it's about 58% absentee-owned. Uh, I think throughout the central Midwest, we usually figure it's around 50-51%. If most absentee owners are as involved emotionally in that land as farm operators are, they may not know as you know the best way to take care of it because they're not as close to it, uh, but they really want to preserve it. My experience has been most of the investment funds that we've had any dealings with also have that same empathy for the farmer and that same interest in trying to preserve the land. Uh, they're not trying to farm it for the short-term gain and sell it. So, you know, as long as we can maintain that kind of a focus, I think I think we can be okay. Are there other props under this market that are helping us or preventing that sharp decline that we might have seen before? Uh, definitely there is. When you look at who sells land, it's primarily non-operating landowners. So it's the inheritors. And that's our clientele. You know, farmers don't sell land unless they're forced to or unless they're consolidating acres or that sort of thing. But when a farmer buys a farm, they don't generally sell it. So they're not a big part of the market when it comes to what's being sold. So the non-operating landowners that have land today or that are inheriting land are looking at their returns, and the returns are not great. You know, they might be 2 3%, maybe 3.5%. In some areas, they can be better than that. And, you know, with a big crop like we had this year and a good marketing program, maybe better than that even uh, this year. But they are looking at those returns as being better than what they could get for a lot of safe returns, even yet today. So when interest rates remain where they are, you know, the impetus is to hold that land and take that return because it's a safer investment than if they sold that land and had to figure out where to put the money. So the net of that is 
we've seen about a 30% and in some, some cases as much as a 40% decline in the number of our clients who are selling land versus what we were seeing back in, say, 2005. And that trend continues. So there's not nearly as many properties on the market today. And those properties that are coming on the market, there's enough buyers to buy them. And I think that's, that's a lot to do with why this market's so steady down as opposed to, you know, a hard roll downhill. What did you see in terms of cash rents? And do you see evidence that perhaps cash rents are coming down as we approach 2017? Well, cash rents last year were down on average uh, for us uh, somewhere around 7%. And that seems to be an average I've heard from others uh, in the industry, in the farm and ranch industry. We are seeing pressure on cash rents as fall. I really haven't seen a a roll-up yet of what our cash rents are. Our managers are negotiating rents right now. We anticipate pressure. Uh, However, we are also seeing record crops in some areas, especially for soybeans, and that's going to relieve some of that pressure, I think, in those markets uh, because the... You know, gross dollars are going to look a lot better perhaps than what was budgeted, or at least it may be closer to what was budgeted, even with these declining prices that we've just seen. Uh, but again, like I say, we would anticipate seeing some downward pressure on cash rents this year, but I'm not sure how much yet. Will the lower cash rents precipitate sales? Not necessarily. The return would have to, you know, drop down quite a bit. I mean, where we are seeing that pressure, Take Nebraska, where taxes on the land are extremely high. Uh, there are some land taxes in the state that will exceed $70 an acre, some higher than that. And when cash rents start to come down and the tax statements are coming in at a higher level, there are some clients I'm aware of and some landowners that I'm aware of who are contemplating selling because of that scenario. You know, that, that return is just getting too thin. And that, I think, at, at this point yet, is still more of an anomaly than it is a trend. Can you profile the landowner, and is there a particular group that are aging now that we would anticipate a greater amount of land shifting, or has that already taken place of ownership? It's already taking place. There is a tremendous transfer of land taking place today. Uh, As far as the age of farm operators, the age of farm owners is, is even older. When you look at our clientele, and we manage about 5,000 farms, it's about 2 million acres of ground in 24 states. So when you look at the cross-section of our clients, every couple of years we do a full client survey. Our our demographics would indicate that uh, 80% of our clients are over the age of 65, and somewhere around 16 to 17% are over the age of 85. And those are the folks who, their, their heirs would be the ones who, will likely sell the farm, or the heirs of the farmer who may pass away and his kids or her kids may end up with that property and sell it. Uh, but the, that transition is, is pretty rampant. It, it's happening all the time. Uh, we have a team here that uh, they spend a good deal of their time just updating management agreements with clients because of uh, death in the family and change of the principles. With a discussion soon coming to Washington about new farm programs, there has been discussion that with now a surplus of corn and of soy of bulk commodities, that perhaps there should be a return to a look at the, the Conservation Reserve Program and perhaps more acres in reserve. It would have to be a lot higher to move the needle a whole lot on land values. Uh, it does have an impact on 
crop size. Uh, you know, there's no question that when we see the type of crops that are being projected for this year, that it's a lot of marginal acres that are producing those crops uh, that have come into production, and some of that would go back out of production into CRP if they were expand those acres. So uh, it, it would have an impact on things, but it would it would have to be a lot of acres to have a big impact on land values. Where we are seeing the least change in land values is on top quality land. Where we're seeing the greatest change in land values is on poor quality land. That would be land that might go into CRP, typically speaking. Uh, that land in some states, uh, it has become very hard to sell it. So when I'm talking about land in Iowa maybe being down 15 to 20% from the highs that were established in late 2012 or early 2013, that would be for the top quality land. If you're into the really poor quality land, chances are it's down even more. And in some states where we do business, it's down 25%, maybe 28% even for that poor quality land. And that's land that would go off the market into CRP, perhaps. Uh, so, as I was saying, it, it would it would not, in my opinion anyway, it wouldn't have a huge impact on land values. Uh, probably more impact, on, like I say, on, on the overall uh, gross yield, if you will, for the crops that are grown in that area. Well, let's take a corner and turn then. My question would be, how much further do we go before we find the bottom and we begin to see... A recovery, or is there a recovery? There, there will definitely be a recovery, and we will definitely be at the bottom. I don't think we're at the bottom yet. Uh, I think we've got more retracement to go on land values. I think we've got more retracement on expenses. Uh, it's still, uh, you know, expenses to put a crop in today are still extremely high, and that includes land. That's your land expense and everything else. Uh, and they're going to have to come down some, or we're going to have to see commodity price come up, one or the other, or a combination of both, before we can say, yeah, we're at a bottom. And so I don't think we're there yet. Uh, you know, there are some folks, some economists that I know that are talking about 2017 maybe being a bellwether year, that that might, might be somewhere near the bottom of the market. I would hope they'd be right. Uh, I don't know if my crystal ball is quite that clear to, to say that's going to be the case, but uh, I do I do strongly feel we have more downtrend yet before we do hit what we would consider to be a firm bottom. Most markets, my experience tells me in the last 40 years in this business, that most markets tend to correct, and they may put a little bit of a rally in, and then they tend to correct to the bottom after that little rally. I don't know that we've put that rally in yet. I, I wonder if we don't still have a little bit downward movement yet based on how markets tend to react almost always. Some influential members of committees of agriculture in Washington have suggested we need to keep a close eye on farm income, and especially as farmers are looking for operating loans into 2017 and perhaps step in uh, to work on policy or to come with some support. Uh, do you see the situation that dire? I really don't at this point. Uh, however, let me let me back up and preface that comment by saying there are operators out there that it is pretty dire for, uh, you know, and, I, and I'm aware of that. There are folks out there that are not going to be able to uh, probably be in business in 2017 because they just aren't going to be able to pull together enough operating capital to keep keep their operation afloat. Uh, but I don't see it a crisis proportion at this point. Uh, not at all. If we were in a free fall on land values, if we were in a, a free fall on, on rents, if we were starting to see 
mass foreclosures on property and, and uh, lots and lots of farm equipment auctions, uh, that would be a different story. But at this point, that's not what we're seeing. However, three months from now, it could look totally different. But right now, that would be my answer. Jim Fair, we want to thank you so much for spending time with us here on Open Mic. Sir, it is Open Mic, and you have an open forum. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to visit and talk a little bit about what's going on and also preface it with what we've seen in history. Uh, Agriculture continues to be a very dynamic industry. Uh, We have great opportunities in this industry. Uh, this, This challenge that we're going through right now, I think ag will come out stronger because of this. And I, I am amazed at the amount of money that is trying to push into agriculture at this point in time. And to me, that's probably one of the biggest changes I've seen in the last 30 years. Uh, I read an article yesterday indicating at least $25 billion of capital is being focused on ag tech. I know there are significant dollars being focused on purchasing pieces of farm land by investors to rent back to farmers to to uh, put that in their portfolios. Uh, you know, when you go back to the 1980s, there was nobody wanting to put money in ag. Today, there is all kinds of money coming into agriculture, which not sure how that will all shake out at the end, but at the moment, it's certainly not a negative thing. Our thanks to Jim Farrell, President and CEO of Farmers National Company, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. The American Sugar Alliance is a national coalition of sugar farmers, processors, refiners, and suppliers dedicated to preserving a strong sugar industry. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Dowling.